brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome, everyone, to our board game podcast. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. And the name of our show is So Very Wrong About Games. We are going to talk about some games we played this week, the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our topic of the week, which is what makes a game worth recommending? Even though you have no idea what kind of person you're recommending it to, what makes you brave enough to suggest such games to them? But first, our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aeris. Roughly last year, we reviewed a game by Vital Lacerda called On Mars, and what we did was we started the game roughly the time we were going to review it, and we just finished it yesterday after going through a rules explanation that took roughly two-thirds of the time. I joke. I joke. But there was actually a, a Twitter thread recently on Twitter talking about how some designers seem not to design games so much as systems piled on top of systems. And the, the tweet didn't mention Vital Lacerda, but he's definitely up there, I think. Because I, I, I played lots of complicated games before, and On Mars, all told, was pretty easy to grok. It was just a series of simple stuff. But, you know, you pile simple stuff tall enough, and, you know, you get to a Vital Lacerda design. It's true, and if it wasn't high enough, let's add another expansion on it that includes now Aliens as well. So there's an expansion out for it, so you can add even more stuff, because more stuff is better? I I think so. It's kind of the opposite approach to most Euro game designs, which seeks to distill a game into some sort of core idea, be it narrative or mechanistic or anything of that sort. On the other hand, you could just have an unfocused, sprawling laborious, tedious thing, which, you know, some people really seem to like. It's so true. This is also the week of Gen Con, and for others, the week of Gen Can't. So we're going to have some big Gen Con news coming up in the news. I bet you just can't wait. But first, the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? Well, we played Cryo together. This is the worker placement game by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie that was released this year by Z-Man. And it was a game that I only got to play a couple of times before leaving on my uh, vast trip of misery and suffering. And I was very glad to return to it. It has a number of clever bits, specifically the ability to run action lines that you get to build when recalling your workers. You know, you get these tokens and you plug them in almost algebraically. You know, trade in one of X for one of Y or trade in one of A or B for one of C. And these evolve over the course of the game. Now, one criticism that you have, Walker, and I don't want to preempt it for you, is that you feel as though these action lines don't really evolve too much. You know, you tend to build a couple and run those over and over over the course of the same game. And I think that's absolutely legitimate for the most part. For the most part. But like you said, I, I, I start every game 
trying to remind myself how important the cards are and say, Mark, you need to get some cards. So some sort of like early card generation is good, but then eventually you want to wean yourself off that. So I really like how they give you multiple lines, right? You have four workers, but six lines. So they're not going to penalize you later. You can sort of three set workers. all six. Sorry, th- it's only three workers, yes. three workers and six lines. So you can sort of get all your lines in a row, as it were, and then you can just run them as you see fit and then stop using the ones you don't need anymore and so on and so forth. I have definitely profited when I've gone to the effort of trying to diversify, being able to have a certain degree of flexibility. But the second cool thing that Cryo does is exactly what you said. It's the cards. Every time you generate a card action, you either play a card or draw a card. Cards are multi-use. And generally speaking, uh, in past games, my first action has always been to generate a line that just gives me a free card every time I recall my workers. And that honestly seems extraordinarily powerful. Because normally, what, in order to get a card action, you typically have to convert some some resource, go to an action space to thereby convert the resource, which means not only is do you have to count in that action itself, but also the action to get the resource that you're converting. And just getting free card actions is really great. I was very glad that in this setup that we had, there were no tokens during the initial setup that allowed for that to happen. It only happened much later that that token showed up. And as a result, a number of us had already built our free lines, and so it was only able to we were only able to plug it into the more expensive versions. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoy Cryo. In a, in a market that's, that's crowded with... Far too many worker placement games where the worker placement is just, as I've said before, a sloppy and lazy way to distribute resources that don't do anything interesting and don't really have any player interaction. Cryo does some kind of interesting things with cards and with the worker recall element. And you get to play with tempo. Again, I've found when I've gone to the effort of sometimes recalling my workers prematurely before I'd placed all my workers, I've benefited considerably if I'm able to take advantage of the board board, uh, position. And there's a little more player interaction than your average worker placement because a lot of your points are going to come from either area majority and or, well, let's be frank, sabotaging your opponents and blowing up their life pods because this is a game where you're nominally waking up colonists uh, so they can go and send to occupy caves. But sometimes, let's just say, they don't end up waking up so much as uh, something else. Yeah, they might not be there anymore yet. They might be in little bits floating what, where did they go, Walker? Where? Why, why did they end up floating? Anyway. <laughs> what did you think of Cryo this time around, Walker? Oh, I still love it. Like I said, I, I keep trying to tell myself, get cards, use cards, cards are good. And then I go right back to my own same old strategy over and over again, plugging out the scouts hmm. and trying to get points that way. The scout action is good. I was actually envious of your abuse of the scout action over and over and over again, particularly because I had the technology that helped me with scouting and I was kind of bitter that I was I, I never really able to get there. You were able to do it. You got a lot of points out of scouting, make no mistake. But yes, cards are very, very powerful, which is fine because, again, they're interesting. They're an interesting element of the game, acquiring them, playing them, deciding how to balance that acquisition and playing. They give you a tremendous degree of flexibility, but at the same time, they also can help guide where you're going to go based on building some special powers at the start of the game and then trying to get your... Anyway, I thoroughly enjoy Cryo. It's quick, it's engaging, it's clever, it's cute. It has a really interesting element of manipulating the tokens. If you played Dwellings of Elder Vale... And at all appreciated that token element, I assure you, I, I, I think it's done infinitely better in Cryo and attached to a much, much better game. And this was designed by Tom Jolly, veteran game designer, and Luke Laurie, he of Dwellings of Elderville, and put it by Z-Man this year. That's Cryo. So speaking of interesting worker placement, Mark, I finally uh, dis- 
you know, eliminated my shelf of shame, as they say. I now have in this house not a single game that I have not played. Woo! Because I finally got Red Outpost to the table. Now this is, and I'm I, I, after I played it, I just really wish I had done this sooner. I really enjoyed this game. So what this is that there are six workers on the board. So it's sort of, in a way, typical worker placement. You're choosing one of these workers and moving it to a different location. But it does something that's really odd. It's like uh, in one phase, uh, everyone gets one turn. And then in the next phase, you all use all six workers. So that means in one turn, you know, everyone's going to turn. And the next turn, two people are going to get an extra turn. But the way the turn structure works is that everyone eventually gets even number of turns. But the way that it, you know, sort of rotates around some, some rounds, someone getting extra and other rounds, other people are. I thought it was great. Every time you use a worker... They could go down in morale. Some space, most spaces make them lose morale. And when you choose a worker, you sort of, it's sort of like an air majority part of the game as well. Cause every time you use a worker, you're going to put a token in their space. And then at the end of that round, you're going to, whoever has the majority of a certain worker is going to score points as long as their morale is positive. And if their morale is negative, you're going to lose points. So you can't just tank workers because when you tank a worker, you put your token in there. So you're doing this, you know, really cool sort of trying to keep your workers safe. You like use them, get them to a, a decent area, you know, so no one else can use them. And there is a little bit of card play too, where it lets you slide tokens around to different workers, all sorts of very interesting things going on. Can't wait to play again. Red outpost. So you could end up in a situation where someone has majority control of a worker and you're probably not going to threaten it, but I could just ping the worker a couple times to make them really sad and saddle you with the lost points. If, if they had gone heavy into Merle, you're only going to get about six because you're not going to get that many rounds before mm -hmm. it resets again. Cause there's two, two days and all the tokens are cleared at the end of the day. So you're not gonna have too much time, but if someone goes very heavy into a worker early and doesn't use them again and gives you a chance to, you know, you could. No, it doesn't take them right to zero, but I think the biggest no, no, no. goal is negative make no two. Make no mistake. I find that yeah. intriguing. I find that an interesting uh, notion yeah. of forcing players not to overcommit, lest that investment be used against them. That's right. There is a spot that will that will make you go down two in morale, so it is a fairly big jump down. So if they <laughs> commit too early, then yeah. What's the thematic explanation for that? Oh, like I said, it's just he it's hard, heavy work. You send them to the mines, <laughs> okay. right? And that's that's not a, a great place to work, so sure. they lose morale. Okay, so it's not just they lose morale; they extract some resources and they lose morale. Okay, that's correct. <laughs> and 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 the it's, I'm glad you said resources because that leads into yet yet another interesting mechanism where every time you generate resources, they go into this common pool that anyone can use, and when uh, when a resource gets to three. Then they get shipped off regardless, you know, it's whoever, whoever gets it to three gets it. So it's this timing mechanism where you want to make sure that you're the one that generates the third resource. You want to set it up for another person. So that's an, another really cool part. This is designed by Raymond Horuk and published by Lifestyle Board Games Limited. And that was Red Outpost. So we had to submit our votes for the International Gamers Awards. The International Gamers Awards was a very, very prestigious game award until they decided to appoint a couple of yahoos from Kingston onto their jury. And uh, now I think their reputation is going to go straight into the gutter if there's any justice in the world. 
But anyway, one of the categories in which I had not tried many of the games was the solitaire category. And so I managed to knock out some evaluations of some of the nominees this week. One of them is Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe Book One, Breaking into Prison. This is by Friedman Feindeson and Gregors Kobiela and put up by Lookout Games. And what this does is it seeks to emulate point-and-click adventure games. You know, the old Sierra or LucasArts point-and-click adventure games where what you have to do is you have to combine the artificial hand onto the distance grabber and then you use that to unscrew a jar of pickles. I think I actually did that legit in a game of Sam and Max Hit the Road at one point. Uh, the, the, the memories are, are a little foggy about some of those details, but that sounds like the kind of stuff you'd be expected to do. And having played Cantaloupe, I have to say that it is an impressive emulation of the video game genre, but I am left wondering why anyone would want to do it. Basically, what you're doing is you have this picture spread on the right-hand side of this. It's a it's a binder, basically, the game, with a bunch of cards. On the right-hand side, you have a picture of what's going on, and you have your, in your right hand, you have a card which represents your magnifying glass. And you line up the magnifying glass with various elements of the map. And then what it tells you is it gives you a paragraph to read. In your left hand, you have the little red plastic decoder thing that lets you actually read the stuff because it's buried under red text to obscure it. And so I look it up and I say, okay, well, this is paragraph Z1E6. And then I go over to Z1E6 and then I read it. And maybe this is a dialogue that will send me off onto a different page. Maybe this is an item that I can pick up. Or maybe it's just a stupid pun. Now, make no mistake, I enjoy stupid puns. Anybody who has listened to the show can attest to the fact that I enjoy stupid puns. Anybody that has had the mispleasure of reading the episode notes to the show can definitely attest to the fact that I adore stupidity and revel in it in a regular basis. But, stupidity you have to look up and cross-reference? It seems a bit weird. I spent most of my time just cross-referencing stuff. And so, that additional level of effort wasn't the kind of engagement that I'm looking for in a board game or in a solo game or a card game. If you're looking at something like Gloomhaven, Gloomhaven in real life versus Gloomhaven in actual application, the additional level of interactivity of the grit, the upkeep, if you will, of my playing cards, of my interacting with the system, of my understanding and knowing the numbers involved, that is a different story. We've talked a lot about the difference between video game adaptations or board game digital adaptations and actual board games. But here in Cantaloupe, it's mostly just cross-referencing. That doesn't do it for me, Walker. That that That's not what I want out of a board game experience. Well, the other things they do in that type of game is they hit you with dumb pun after dumb pun that seem meaningless. And then they sneak something in that's like a trick <laughs> that's part of the clue or, or a puzzle. And then you just breeze over it thinking it's yet another piece of dumbness. That, that is a good point. The, the point at which I knew I was done with Cantaloupe was, again, one of those moments where it was really evoking its source material. My character, my avatar, the main character of the game, was looking behind a dumpster, and it said, something shiny appears to be there. If only I had something long to reach out and grab it. And I'm like, I'm done. That's it. Like, <laughs> like that level of absurd artificiality, which, again, is, is embedded in those old Sierra and LucasArts games. It's absolutely part of what it's trying to do. Not for me. So that coupled with the endless cross-referencing, led me to believe that this was an interesting experiment. Again, it was a clever use of cards. What can you evoke with a simple set of cards and text and picture? But it seemed like an experiment with no purpose. And so if you really, really like the story, maybe it's going to pull you through. But the story is mostly just, how can I get past this next roadblock? Read paragraph after paragraph trying to find this stuff. And the writing was fine. It was pretty good. 
But ultimately, as I say, I didn't quite understand the point. This may have a target audience, but if it is, if so, it is definitely not me. So that was my experience with Cantaloupe Book One, Breaking into Prison. And there are several books which continue the overarching narrative. So, Mark, I got to play Brass Burningham again. This is designed by Martin Wallace, and some other people have tried to put their name on it, Matt Tolman and Garvin Brown. This is put out by Roxley Games, and it's number three on Board Game Geek ranking, and it's a, a great game. I really like it. I, this is a game that I, I think I want to play more. I only ever got to play it once. We played many games like this before where you're setting out buildings and 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 Martin Wallace has done this many times. This is just yet another re-implementation of the same sort of system. You're you're setting out routes and you're trying to make sure you have presence in all the key areas. You're trying to, you know, balance your income so you have the money when you need it and you're not overspending and going into debt, having the buildings out, having a nice supply for coal, not only for you to use, but other players, iron and beer and pumpkins, and orphans. All of these things are very important. No, what, what, some of those are made up, Walker. We get to call them whatever we want, Mark. As you well know, <laughs> this is how we roll. So Brass Burnium, I think I might play it more often. It's like one of those games where it just gets better the more you play it. And a lot of the people that I'm playing with now are very keen on it. So it might be a game that I talk about more. One of the ways I can tell that someone's really simpatico with my set of board gaming tastes is if they prefer Age of Industry to Brass. Because I'm a big fan of Age of Industry. I played Age of, Age of Industry first, which was probably a mistake. Because having played Brass afterwards, every difference between Age of Industry and Brass struck me as a massive, pointless, either complication or obscuring of the central decision-making involved. Whether it, this is a Lancashire thing, of course, I, I keep harping on the Birkenhead connection in Lancashire, but it's really emblematic of some of Martin Wallace's design excesses, which sometimes he he kind of trims down. The weird income track that increases arithmetically sometimes, and then goes backwards sometimes, and then all that other stuff. Ugh. I, I recognize that what Brass is doing, it's doing pretty well, and I. But I really like Age of Industry. I don't know what I'd feel about Brass if I had never played Age of Industry first. But I should really, when I get back, show you some of the variant boards of Age of Industry. So like the, the Soviet-Russia board for Age of Industry is really interesting. And really, I think, plays with the formula in a, a more fundamentally clean way than, than Brass Birmingham does. It's true. And it came out before, right? It's, it's, it's It feels as though it is a game that would have come out after these two other games. Like Sort of like a boiled-down... This is the elements that are great about the game. Well, no, it's it's more complicated than that because the original Brass, just Brass Simpliciter, which was published by Warfrog, was then renamed Brass Lancashire. So now it's called Brass Lancashire. That came out first. Then, considerably later, Age of Industry came out. And then, considerably after that, Brass Birmingham came out and Brass Lancashire was reprinted. So Age of Industry is indeed a distillation of the, the, the Brass engine, uh, Birmingham is just sort of a, a different branch of the evolution of those design ideas using the brass fundamentals as opposed to the age of industry fundamentals. And indeed, one of the ways that I knew that the IGA jury in the past was really simpatico with the way I, I, I view things is they gave the game of the year in the strategy cat multiplayer strategy category to Age of Industry when it came out. Which it rightly deserved. And that is Brass Burningham. Another solo game on the IGA shortlist 
I played was Clever Cubed, or Hoch im Dre, which is the third game in the... That's that's really... Well, what is it? Awfully Clever? I can't remember what they're called. They're all clever. Something, something. You roll dice, check some boxes. Hooray, you comboed, you win. I don't think that's what I they're called. That, I think that's a direct translation. I no, think no, I don't think that's what it's called. The first one was called That's Pretty Clever. And then there's Twice as Clever. And now there's Clever Cubed. Are you, wait, are you talking about like the joke I just said? Or are, the, are these the names of the game? I, what, I'm confused. Walker, does it sound like I would ever call you clever? Is that a thing that sounds mm. consistent with sorry, yeah, attitudes? I, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. So this is Clever Cubed. It is indeed very much the next Wolfgang Barsh clever game. And so you roll dice and you fill out a spreadsheet. It's got a little bit of an evolution of the of the genre in that the round in which you take the die will influence what you can do with the die for some of the fields, not all. So if you're taking a yellow die, it matters whether it's the first die you've taken on your turn or the second die or the third die. So that, I guess, is... Variation on a theme? I don't know. My mind is blown. Yeah, I know. I have to say that in it de- definitely didn't change my mind with respect to Roland Rights. It felt an awful lot like paperwork. And compared to what I think is indisputably the greatest game in the Roland Wright category, Roll a Six, Win a Cookie, it definitely lacks a certain chocolatey appeal. Now, look, if you're diabetic or heavily on a diet, maybe you might prefer Clever Cubed over Roll a Six, Win a Cookie. But honestly, I'm going to stick with Roll a Six, Win a Cookie. And that is Clever Cubed by Wolfgang Barsch, published by Schmidt Spiel. So we finally got to get the right people together to get back to our Sleeping Gods campaign. This is designed by Ryan Lockhart and published by Red Raven Games. So we're back to the grind again, Mark. Really? And at at first, you know, I was I I could see where some people might not see it as a grind, or maybe mm-hmm. it was just me. But literally, there was a story element where. It was, here's a few options, and here is the obviously wrong, stupid option. <laughs> in Sleeping Gods, no matter what, you're going to get through to the next part of the story. You're just going to get a penalty. So there's no thing. But it makes you go through these two other t- options before you, before you say, well, I've used both of those, so I guess this other one must be correct. And so it just ladles on damage and fatigue on all your characters. So yet once again, you have to go back to a port and clear all that off and grind it out again. It's getting a little frustrating, but there it goes. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, I'm really curious to try it for myself because I, I trust you. We have fundamentally the same observations with respect to a lot of these narrative games. But like, there's a lot of good parts about it. Like the, the combat is very interesting it's a, a nice puzzle to figure out who's going to attack, who can do the right amount of damage, and and when, because some things fly, some don't, some are harder to hit, some people are fatigued out, so it's a, a very interesting sort of combat puzzle, and it's neat how they can come in a different order, because you sort of shuffle up your enemies and put them out, and you can, like, line damage across onto other enemies and stuff like that. All of that stuff is very interesting. It's just this, you know we're going to try to put damage on you for the sake of you having to spend time to get it off you. And and those events that, that, as you say, ladled on the damage and fatigue, were they at least narratively satisfying? Were they interesting? Did they shed light on the characters, on the world or anything? 
No, not at all. It oh was, boy, I'm trying not to say anything. It was sort of like, well, yeah, we don't want to like, spoil anything. Yeah, of course. yeah, I don't want to spoil anything. It's like it was like something. Here's something that you get. Here's some things that you can do with it. Here's things that are obviously that make sense, and then this last thing at the bottom that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Like grafting on the artificial hand to the grabber and then using that to unscrew a jar of pickles? Exactly. That is Sleeping Gods by Ryan Lockett. I finally played Parks. Parks was released a couple years ago by Keymaster Games, designed by Henry Audubon. I'm sorry, it's it's in all caps, so I should communicate it in the style of the internet. It's PARKS! And I was not expecting to enjoy it, primarily because I've just come off a raft of nature-themed visually appealing, or at least ostensibly visually appealing, nature Z games that I didn't think were particularly good. The latest in this example being, of course, Cascadia, which was fine, but I didn't even think it was very visually appealing. And so Parks comes out, and I had already seen the art. The game was indeed inspired by a series of commissioned posters for the National Parks system in the United States of America. And indeed, the posters are very arresting. They're all done in varied visual art styles, but they're all very colorful and very striking and iconic. And unlike a lot of the other games where all the appealing stuff is shoved off to the side, these posters are the key element of the game. The goal of the game, broadly speaking, is to buy as many of these as you can with various resources that you collect. The fundamental action selection system is kind of, sort of, vaguely reminiscent of a rondelle crossed with the action selection mechanism of a Gizia or even something like Tutankhamen, where you can only go forward, but you can't go back. And there's this additional element of only sometimes being able to occupy spaces where someone else is, and that ability refreshing at various times. I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed Parks. Initially, when it was set up, I, again, I, I had zero expectations. I had negative expectations. I thought it was going to be just this incredibly simplistic affair of gather resources, turn them in for the uh, for these as these recipes for these cards, wash, rinse, repeat. This is just about the theme and nothing else. And I was really impressed with how difficult the action trade-offs were in terms of gathering these resources. There's an advantage to getting various places first. Sometimes you really need to get to the end of the line quickly to both refresh your ability and to be able to buy a card before somebody else might buy a card. So you're looking around at other people's resources, what they have available, what they might be able to snake out from under you. There's also special powers that you might want to acquire, but every time you do, that's at the expense of buying a parks card. So if you're low on resources, it makes perfect sense, but sometimes this is a serious opportunity cost. And sometimes you want to be earlier in the turn, sometimes you want to be later in the turn, sometimes you want to delay, sometimes you want to rush. It was really interesting. I thought that the action selection was pulling a lot of the weight, and the difficulty of gathering resources was just about right. You're never drowning in resources, but by the same token, there's it's never so parsimonious that you feel like you're never getting anywhere. I thoroughly enjoyed Parks for what it was. You know, a 30 to 45 minute, very light resource manipulation and gathering game with a smattering of special powers and some other scoring conditions. I highly recommend it to anyone that isn't necessarily a core gamer and or anybody who's taken by the theme. I have zero appreciation for nature, and I thought that the posters were quite interesting, and they had little bits of information about the national parks, which is nice. And I cannot believe that the game was, in point of fact, designed by a, a person by the name of Henry Audubon. I assumed that was a joke. I looked into it. Nope. Name is Henry Audubon. 
signed a game called Parks. <laughs> so I'm a little late to the party on this one. I realize it's been getting plaudits from a lot of corners, but I am very, very pleased to say that I enjoyed the game as well. Nothing spectacular, nothing that I'm necessarily going to seek out, but I have to say I was expecting something painful, and I came away very, very pleasantly surprised. And that is Parks by Henry Audubon, published by Keymaster Games. So, Mark, you both, you and I both enjoy Shards of Infinity. They have a new expansion called Into the Horizon. And what this adds is some more just uh, generic cards into your deck, so it's now even grander. And two other side decks. Sorry, not two others. One other side deck and a specific set of cards that go in the deck. These are sort of like uh, enemies that will come out and get flipped into a new pile, and they all have about 10 health. So you can decide either to attack your enemies or to kill one of these creatures. And when the enemies, when these creatures come out, they do something negative to the whole table, and whoever ends up killing them will get a benefit. And what the other deck does is when you get to 10 levels, or you're trying to collect mastery, you're trying to get these mastery things. So when you get to five... You get to choose one of these cards, and they give you some sort of new benefit. Some of them Those are, are the destinies, right? Destinies, yeah. Some of them are quite quite powerful, right? And some of the creatures that I just talked about will allow you to take a second destiny. So if you get a couple of these that combo off each other, we were looking at some that if you got them both would be quite amazing. We had a great game, even though it was three-player, not the ideal mm-hmm. count. But it still it didn't play too, too badly. Tried a whole new strategy that... Because normally in two players, I think you'll almost end up almost every time killing someone else by damage and not getting your mastery up. Because in three players, sometimes you're sort of spreading your damage around. I just felt I'll try to get to my mastery because it's something I hardly ever do. And it actually worked out. And it was a great game. I This is another yet another, what is this, like the fourth expansion that's out for this? I believe it's only All the great. third. Third expansion. Great deck building game. This is designed by Gary Arendt, Justin Gary, Ryan Sutherland, Jared Saramango, and it's put out by Stone Blade Entertainment. Well, glad you enjoyed it. Played another game of Picomino Deluxe. Reiner Canizia certainly knows how to do his dice games. One thing that is generally true of one of the stereotypes about Reiner Canizia is that a lot of his games are very, very math intensive. But I actually kind of enjoy it, because one of the hurdles for some people when playing Picomino, and this is this is not trivial, I, I, I'm not trying to sound insulting or dismissive, is you're expected to do lots of arithmetic all the time. You know, you've socked away three fours, you're starting out at a 12, you sock away two threes, you then have to know that you're now at 18, and then you start looking at the various possibilities, you know, I'm aiming for the 28 or what have you, and so you're looking at what the dice could possibly give you and what numbers you might actually get. And that honestly is one of the key skills that Picomino tests, not so much your command of probabilities, because quite frankly, if you give me six dice and ask me what are the, what's the probability of getting two or more fives on six dice, I don't have the foggiest clue. The moment it's past two dice, or the moment it's, you know, five pick two, or six pick three, or what have you, I can't do that math in my head. I know some people who can, I'm very impressed by those people, but I certainly don't think about it in those terms. I instead think about, well, what are the various step thresholds that I might be able to use to get to the numbers that I want to get to? Now, some people really, really hate having to do that kind of math in their heads, I find it kind of cool and just imagining the different possibilities and trying to figure out the different decision spaces of what I might be able to get if I push my luck or whether I should just call it a day and get out quick with my barbecued worms 
is fundamentally what I think the the experience of playing Picomino is for me. I commented before that the special powers in Picomino Deluxe I didn't add significantly more than they took in terms of calculation. This time, though, I was pleasantly surprised. that These were new players who had not played with the special powers before, and they all took to them immediately, and we never really consulted the rules manual. Maybe this was because just I, I had a greater familiarity with the powers. And so now they, I really felt that they were a, a nice, pleasant little addition. Just a, a little something to spice up the game and make some player positions asymmetrical, and also to inform the push-your-luck decision, because if you bust you lose your special power as well. And so that encourages you to be a little bit more conservative once you have a power, because you, you might want to keep it. Whether that's the right call or not, who knows? It's a push-your-luck game. That's fundamentally what you need to decide. And I had a, I had a great time. It's, it's a lovely little filler. Maybe it's about five minutes longer than it wants to be. But quite frankly, I really like how Reiner Kinsey does dice games, and I really like the way that Picomino manipulates dice. And so that is my, my, my further experiences with Picomino Deluxe. Speaking of Ryder Knizia, I got to go back to Witchstone, which I think is one of my favorite games so far out this year. This, like I said, is by Ryder Knizia and Marciano Chicachera, put out by Hutch Games, but we got a demo copy from R&R Games. And what you're doing here is you're placing tiles, and each tile has two actions on it, and you're placing them in your, in the, in your cauldron, and depending on how you place them is going to tell you how powerful your action is going to be because you're trying to match all these symbols, be it a wand action or a crystal action or a witch action. and Which action? All of these, that action, the other one, not not that one. And it's, it's just a really good game. I enjoy it every time I play it because there's different things you can sort of try to focus on. You can try to focus on your cauldron and getting maximum actions. You can try to race up the wand track. And just the wand track alone is very interesting because there's like victory point uh, considerations there. And there's also whoever's the furthest along will get a benefit. So you could race up there early, but all of these victory point considerations are going to be very low because you haven't done any of the other actions that, you know, build up these, these you know, victory point triggers like one is getting a bunch of connections out on the board and it's like the very you know in the within the first three spaces on the wand board so if you go if you go past that then you're either scoring zero or a low number but if you go late in the game you could be scoring tons of points but not getting as much benefit from being furthest along the track and that is just one small part of this game yet another fantastic game by Reiner Knizia we did a whole show on it so if you want to hear more about it i would go back to that because i don't want to go too much more into it fantastic game Witchstone. i feel dirty saying this sincerely it, it really inspires a fair degree of cognitive dissonance it makes me feel like one of those moments that i don't really know myself i really want to try bonfire again as i said in my review of Witchstone, i think there's some clever bits but ultimately it feels like a disconnected point salad thing and i wasn't a huge fan of it certainly not nearly as much a fan as you are but it at the time and still now, I, I, I want to go back to Bonfire because it has some of the same elements of the action selection, but a radically different scoring mechanism grafted on top of it. So what I'm saying is, is that this Knizia design was two-point salad for me. I'd like to try the Feld design that's kind of sort of vaguely similar, which is an odd statement. I was going to say, who's... Sorry. I, I know, I, think I know. I, I'm having connection issues. <laughs> I seem to have my wires crossed. One moment. No, Bonfire is like actually right on my table right now. I'm I'm refreshing myself back on because it's going to come up onto the table very soon because there's an expansion coming out soon and I too want to get back to it. I think I've only played it twice and it had all sorts of interesting things going on there as well. 
Lastly, for me, I got to play Empire of the Stars. Empire of the Stars is a sort of Eurofied slash condensed 4X experience by Adam West at Crosscut Games, kind of a re-implementation of Galactic Emperor, which he put out over 10 years ago. And I've been meaning to get to the table again. However, it has a fair amount of combat, and indeed the combat system is very, very cool. I'm a huge fan of how it handles combat. And I haven't really been in a crowd that really wanted to play games with fighting involved, so I played it solo. The solo mode is uh, simultaneously interesting and disjointed, which in turn is very similar so far to my evaluation of Empire of the Stars. It has this action queue that you build for the uh, solo AI, and that's all well and good. It has a series of events which tend to make the game harder and more chaotic, which is fine in a solo game. And indeed, you can use those events in the multiplayer game, but the designer in the rulebook is very, very clear, this will make the game very chaotic and possibly unbalanced. So I appreciate that it's an option, but I also appreciate that it was expunged. Uh, Because a lot of 4X games tend to have those sorts of events that really seem to unduly penalize one player. Whether it's those exploration tokens you often find in a game where it's like, oh, look at the system, it's not really a system, it's a black hole, all your ships are dead. Ha 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 ha, sucker! Or some sort of event that says, okay, next turn, this particular kind of action or this particular kind of unit is not usable. And, okay, great, one player is more heavily invested in that action or unit than other players. That's not exactly fair. So, a lot of that was going on, but again, in the solo mode, I didn't really I didn't really mind. And those, those events I, I quite liked. Things like, you have to lose a tech, or you have to pay for every planet that produces a certain kind of resource, or you lose it, or you get to colonize something, etc., etc. Fundamentally, though, it interacted in a number of ways with some of the oddities of Empire of the Stars. Again, I feel that Empire of the Stars has a lot of promise, and I really, really want to play it again multiplayer, but I want to highlight one aspect in which the game is slightly odd, and in which the solo mode interfaced with that oddness in a yet further odd way. Like many action selection games, in Empire of the Stars, you select a role, and you get to do the role better, and everyone else gets to do the role slightly worse. It's not quite as ham-fisted as some role selection games where the, the role only matters if you select it and everyone else basically gets to do nothing, but it's certainly not as washed out and generic as some other role selection games where selecting it has no benefit. But the Warlord role, which is where fights get started, the, the ostensible benefit is you get to go last, which is weird. Because sometimes you desperately want to go first, because sometimes there might be real estate that's there to be gobbled up. And if you go last, it might already be gone, and so the only way you can go get it is by going and fighting someone for it, whereas they might have been able to get it for free and or for cheap. The way that this interfaced with the solo mode was yet further bizarre, because the way the AI works is they basically just destroy systems that they leave. You know, they show up somewhere, they park for a while, and then if they leave and move off of that system, it gets destroyed. And that's true whether it's a neutral planet, or even if it's your home world, in which case the game the, the game just flatly ends, which is fine. Except for the fact that a weird series of events caused the enemy ships through no fault of my own, to go and park on my home world and my home systems. And I'm like, okay, well, fine. I have a pretty good fleet. My military is very capable. I can just select Warlord and go kick them out, right? 
wrong, because the benefit of selecting Warlord is going last, which means that the AI fleet will leave and destroy my system before I can do anything about it. So what I had to do was I was in this bizarre holding pattern where I could absolutely and go punch them in the face real hard, but I had to wait for the AI to select Warlord first, so its benefit was that it would act after me, so I could go and kill it first? It was strange. And I, I'm spending so much time talking about the strangeness because there are a number of interesting... Sometimes interesting, sometimes just weird, sometimes fluky interactions that are in Empire of the Stars. Is this the kind of thing that you necessarily have to put up with when you're trying to condense this level experience into 90 minutes? Not necessarily, because, you know, Warpgate is much cleaner. Even something like Quantum, which is yet cleaner still. I think of a game like Senji, which manages to sprawl and yet both be very, very clean at the same time. Whereas Empire of the Stars feels a little rickety in the sense that it's just importing a whole bunch of different things that go on together. It's not nearly on the level of a Fatal Lacerda. It's much more integrated than that. And it certainly doesn't pile the nonsense as high. But there's a lot of interesting stuff in Empire of the Stars. And the solo mode introduces yet more interesting things. But I fear that it might not cohere. But I definitely want to try it again multiplayer and really let it breathe with people that are interested in exploring the combat who are not risk-averse and or conflict-averse. So I, I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is that I find so promising. Maybe it's the writing, because there is actually good writing in Empire of the Stars, both in the event cards and in the, the story elements and the special powers. It makes me laugh. It's got personality. And as they say in Pulp Fiction, personality goes a long way. So as I say, I'm, I'm looking forward to future experiences with Empire of the Stars. I'm still cautiously optimistic, even as my caution increases. And that's Empire of the Stars by Adam West and Crosscut Games. And lastly for me is Grim the Masquerade, designed by Tim Elsner, Ben Elsner, and Jame Hudson. And it's put out by Druid City Games. So in this game, so there's eight characters, eight items. The players are all dealt a random character. And on your character, it'll give, tell you what, which of the eight items is your boon and which is your bane. And the object of the game is to get three of your boon items in front of you. And if, if ever there's two of the bane items in front of you, then you're, you're been revealed. So it's all hidden information, but you know, everyone's a, is a different boon and everyone's a different bane. So there's, you know, all of these little bits of true information that you have because if you're this character then nobody else is and if you know that this character is out of the game that means you know so it's you're sort of trying to detective your way through all these different things because if someone gets two of an item then they have to reveal that they are not that person so you, you get ah. even more information right so this goes back and forth and there's three rounds and every round you can point the finger at someone as one of your actions and and say who they are and if you're wrong they get some victory points and then every round there's two other actions that you can do that change and it's all to do with moving the cards around or making them put out more tokens on the board so it you know increases your information but decreases who they can be and this has a very big feel of uh, sort of like dinosaur tea party because you you know we had that feeling that one person would be sort of picked on right because you're trying to get them out and you know more information about them. So it's same thing in, in Grim the Masquerade. Mm. There's more, one person has more tokens out. So, you know, you know, there's six of the characters that or five of the characters that can't be. So it's really reduces who they can be. So they start to get picked on, but this is one of those things you're trying to be the last person in because then you're going to get the victory points for the round. And it goes, it goes, uh, I think it's one, three, five. So the last round really matters five points. 
and it's this very odd dynamic because you get into that part where you can start pointing the finger because they're only going to get one point if you're wrong and if you know you're the last one then you're going to get five and it's going to be such a huge jump that you can start taking those chances because you know one or two points is not going to help them you being last and them having more tokens on the board very interesting back and forth very interesting sort of you know manipulating the points manipulating the game actually i'm glad i remember this because i want to go back to our our segment that we did on cheating so one of the actions mark is pick two players and they have to put tokens on on characters that they are not so you just simply take a token because there's a big board in the middle and has all the eight characters. And this is how you track who you know who's not who, right? Right. So you're supposed to take one of your tokens and put it on a character that you're not. So, you know, I did like the total head fake. It's like, should I put it on? I went to put it on one character. And I said, no, I'm not going to put it on this one instead. <laughs> <laughs> right? Sort of like nonchalantly. Like, no. Nah, you know, so so to, to try to eliminate those two characters. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things. I'm just wondering. It's, yeah, I thought it was funny. And I think that's in the spirit of the game. I don't know. I would just like to clarify, it was not a segment on cheating. It was a segment on bluffing. And what you bluffing, did was yes. you did, you crybarred open my narrow little conception of what could constitute a bluff and pointed out that in lots of non-bluffing games, you can indeed bluff. I, I, I would like to issue a minor update. I think I was just reeling from the realization of my cate- my narrow little category being broadened. I think I overreacted. And I think that my initial judgments were perhaps too harsh. Because what you're describing seems perfectly legitimate, and it sounds like the kind of thing that you would do in any kind of game, whether or not it was that kind of game. Returning back to the example in Root of pretending as though you're considering to play an ambush card, whether or not you have an ambush card... That seems legit. I mean, I think that's okay. I, I didn't I didn't come out in this segment, and I don't think, come out and say, no, no, that's not acceptable. I was just unsure. I, I think I'm a little more sure now. I think that's fine. I think that's definitely fair game. And it's certainly in a game where, with hidden identities and you're trying to make inferences about people's behavior, I think it's perfectly okay to engage in verbal and nonverbal social clues in an attempt to misdirect. Yeah, I'll play Grim Masquerade anytime. I had, I had a great time playing it right up my alley. Great little party game. I've been thinking a lot about Bloodbound lately. I haven't played Bloodbound in a while. And that... Oh, God. <laughs> well, it's a similar kind of game where information gradually gets revealed, but it's team-based, so there's no danger of anyone picking on anything. But the art's so bad. Oh, that's... Oh, look, come on. You only see it at the beginning and the end of the game, and you get to see the art at the end of the game for the, for the fabulous minigame where you get to pair everyone up in couples, or you can have polyamorous relationships. That's fine, too. Or a non-romantic ace off to the corner, not wanting to engage in any relationships. Come on, Bloodbound's great. I thought there was a reprint for there that, was. where they, it was a more of a an animation-type style. A, a slightly more traditional pedestrian art style rather than the original art style of, hey, some friends and me are really into LARPing. And we put on some costumes and and put on really muggy faces in front of the camera, which is, I think, obviously the best way to play. Disagree. (laughs) Those are the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First of all, big news. Fundraiser coming up Saturday, October 2nd at 3 p.m. We have some guests that are confirmed. We have No Pun Included with Efka and Elaine coming. We have Board Game Barrage. We're not sure how many of them are going to show up, but hopefully all of them we shall see. We have Cosmos supplying five games that we can give away of mission of sorry, of crew, mission deep sea, and that we're going to be playing the original crew. 
with all of our guests and with some people from our own posse. Come and check it out. It's going to be great. We're raising uh, money for Food Banks Canada. It's going to be on Twitch. We're very much looking forward to this, and we're very much looking forward to playing some games with the crew with our special guests. I just have a brief update on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. I talked several months ago about how they were going to be putting out an Ultimate 4th Edition of Doomrock with lots of new content and lots of reimagined content. And I have to say, there have been a lot of development updates and designer diaries from Beautiful Disaster Games about the development of Doomrock Ultimate. And I have to say, I am... Thoroughly, I'm practically vibrating with anticipation now. We're a long ways off from it being finished. It's not even going to be on Kickstarter in the near future. But the level of detail and the level of comprehensiveness that they're really imp- using for this new edition of Doom Rock makes me super, super, super enthusiastic. So go check out the entry on BoardGameGeek for Assault on Doom Rock Ultimate Edition and check out the designer diaries and the development updates. They are super interesting. I highly recommend them. So, like I said, it was Gen Con weekend and Fancy Flight Games always has huge announcements for their Gen Con weekend. Sorry, who? And this Fancy Flight Games. This is this is that a, is is that no a publisher? Mark. Well, it's not. It's not Fancy Flight long for long. They're changing their name to Dead Horse. <laughs> and not to be outdone, Asmodee has also decided to change their name to Beater McBeatstick. <laughs> Yes, they did announce an expansion for Star Wars Outer Rim, specifically Unfinished Business. These are glimmers of what Fantasy Flight used to be, because Star Wars Outer Rim was released all of two years ago, and we don't often see expansion content for anything Fantasy Flight does anymore. Whereas it used to be the joke that they had too many expansions, now they just don't have enough of anything compared to what they used to be. And there's going to be, this is less of a surprise, an expansion for the Descent called Ghosts of Grey Heaven. So, look, I'm happy. I'm not necessarily going to be consuming any of this, I really didn't like Star Wars Outer Rim, but some people do. And I'm not particularly excited about their upcoming release of Unfathomable. But hey, more participation of one of the former greats in the industry is probably for the good. And at least there's some signs of life after Asmodee has been gutting it so much for the past few years. Have they? Oh, let's look into that. (laughs) So, Mark, I just got my Niroshima Hex Year of the Moloch big box edition. Very excited. When I looked into it, I could have sworn that the number of places for factions left four empty ones for upcoming factions, when in fact there are no empty ones for any factions, and they already have another faction coming out this month, Beasts, which won't fit in the box oh. that we just got. Oh, So yeah, that's that's great, right? Good thing I got the big box that doesn't fit all the stuff Oh, that I bought to fit all the stuff. I seem to recall, Walker, that when you initially talked about the release of this product, you knew already that the, that it wasn't going to hold everything that had already been announced. And yet you went ahead and bought it anyway. <laughs> I don't want to blame the victim here, but I'm going to blame the victim. Fine. <laughs> Some David Thompson news. David Thompson, one of the favorite designers of So Very Wrong About Games. There has been some art revealed of the map board of the next Valiant Defense game. We're big fans of the the, the previous Valiant Defense game, Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms, and I'm a big fan of the previous releases in the series, namely Pavlov's House and Castle Itter. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed, to be honest, that the next Valiant Defense game is going to be about the Battle of the Bulge, Americans versus Germans. I mean... Like every other Wargame product in the history of ever, we get to the Battle of the Bulge, but okay, fine. More David Thompson is good David Thompson. 
and there is going to be another game in the Undaunted series. They've just submitted it to Osprey Games for publication. This year, we're going to see Undaunted Reinforcements, which is an expansion with multiplayer and solo modes for North Africa and... Normandy. The next Undaunted apparently is bigger in scope than anything they've ever done with the Undaunted series. And I'm very keen to find out more about it, but we're going to get details over the course of the coming year. So more output from David Thompson, and that makes me very happy. So Underworlds is still getting more support, unlike some other Games Workshop products. They're coming out with another box set. This is going to be Harrow Deep. And some of the figures look very interesting for this. Yet more factions to play. This is a great miniature skirmish slash deck building player cards, moving miniatures, try to get good, you know, uh, combos going, good gang ups going. I enjoy it every time I play it. That is Underworlds by Games Workshop. On Kickstarter right now is One Deck Galaxies, which is the follow up to One Deck Dungeons. It was by Asmati Games. Full disclosure, Chris Cheslick, the designer and publisher of One Deck Galaxies, is a personal friend of mine. I have pledged for One Deck Galaxies. It has been in development for several years, and I'm very impressed with the work that's been done. And I am very much looking forward to One Deck Galaxies. It's sci-fi and it's multiplayer. What else could you possibly want off of an already solid engine established in One Deck Dungeons? So this week, we streamed Witchstone and Grim Masquerade. We stream every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. This Saturday coming up, we're either going to be playing Yokohama or Tidal Blades. And from what I watched on Twitch yesterday, you'd think I'm just sort of making this up, Mark, but <laughs> I need to to reiterate. Go ahead. There will be no puppet shows during our streams. Who are you subtweeting? This is subtweeting, Walker. Just just so you know. Like I thought it was a, it was a little bit of a joke at first, but then from what I witnessed just yesterday. I just want to make sure people understand Okay, I, there will be no puppet shows. I have two questions. Number one, when you hold up the box top to the camera and say, welcome to Naviri, does that count as a puppet show? No. Okay. No, question, it does not. Question the second. When you keep talking about puppet shows, are you talking about one Twitch streamer or are you talking about several Twitch streamers? Several. Oh my goodness. Finally for me. Yes. It is an episode with a multiple of five, which means we're going to be talking about our Patreon. We have a Patreon. And more to the point, we are going to be resurrecting the highly successful promotion we did last year, which in the month leading up to Arkhipov Day, which is in October, if you sign up for a year's worth of Patreon pledges up front, you will get two months for free. So pay for 10 months, get two months free. I would try to tie this into Arkhipov Day more directly, but I think that would be crass and insulting, even by my standards. So the correspondence is merely temporal, not in any way conceptual. This isn't like President's Day, where somehow in everyone's mind, President's Day means mattresses. This just happens to be the timing of when we're going to do it. So if you've been on the fence, or if you have been paying month to month, and you wish to take advantage of the special discount, by all means, go ahead. So that is what we will say about the Patreon. And if you haven't checked out the Patreon page, you get the whole episodes unedited, depending on what tier you get. You also get Bi-weekly, we put out our Pledge of Indifference, which we talk about all the group funding stuff that's going on that particular week, and all sorts of extra stuff that we put out. Editorials, irregular episodes, special stuff, all manner of stupidity. On the topic of online stupidity, lastly for me with respect to swag news, we have a website. SoWrongGames.com is where you can find all our episodes. You can find information about the show, our various policies, random jokes, bits of nonsense, information about the extended cast of the Swag Extended Universe or Swagoo. 
And we recommend you check it out. If you're at all curious about anything we do, you can go find a whole bunch of information and nonsense at SoWrongGames.com. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic. Our topic this week is... Our topic this week is what makes a game worth recommending. And I hate this topic, Mark. Why is that? Recommending games is terrible. I know. I brought this up because some people have said that they want on the website that you had just previously talked about that they want to have some games that so very wrong about games recommends. And I hate that it's, because yeah. you need to know some things, Mark, when you try to recommend games. Things like what else they have in their co- in their collection, what age groups are they playing with, how much time do they usually play. What is the usual player count? How often do they play in a week? What kind of games do they like? (laughs) These are all things that you need to know when you recommend a game to someone. Absolutely. I think you're exactly right to situate it in terms of the gamer rather than the game itself. Like, we've never aspired to have some kind of logo or a sticker on a box with our our podcast on it to be like, Swag Recommends. Because, I mean, yeah, we, we talk about games we love. But even our favorite games, we wouldn't say are appropriate in all contexts. Like, I, there are many people to whom I would never in a million years recommend Tigers and Euphrates. Like, that's one of the things that you often have as, like, the first conversation. Oh, you're a podcaster about board games. What's your favorite game? My favorite game is Tigers and Euphrates. Oh, I've never heard of that. Should I try it? And the answer is, well, based on the fact that you don't know anything about the hobby, probably not. No judgment. Yeah, I mean. like, I'm, probably not for you. I'm sure this conversation is going to break down to a bunch of games at the end that we're going to talk about. And yeah, the Tigers and Euphrates is not one of them. <laughs> well, okay. There, nonetheless, I do think there are, fortunately, uh, some useful things that can be said. And I've talked about this before to some people. I've found it very, very helpful to be able to establish credibility with gamers when in a new environment. And I don't mean, like, to establish myself as as the alpha among these betas or whatever. It's just, you know, people don't know you, they don't know what your tastes are, they don't know if you have good taste in games or bad taste in games. And that's one of the reasons why I've really appreciated having Regicide in my bag that I carry with me all the time. You know, it's like, hi, my name is Mark. Oh, I don't know if other people are going to be showing up. Oh, we can play something quick. They start staring at the wall of games at where, wherever we happen to be. It's like, well, I've got this quick co-op card game. How'd you like to try it? And then instant credibility. <laughs> That's not fun, Mark. I pl- I I I have a a friend of mine like Munchkin, so I have a bunch of empty Munchkin boxes that I carry in a, in a game bag. <laughs> so when I go to a new group, I like lift out this giant pile of Munchkin, and so they know exactly what kind of gamer I am. <laughs> well, no, Munchkin. My, my, <laughs> my point is that a, a lot of my analysis is indeed premised on knowing who your audience is, but there are some things that I think. There's a category of games, and it, it's pretty rarefied, and it's it's not very common, of games that are really, really high quality and well-designed, but simultaneously, you're safe to recommend to lots of different groups of people. Not everybody, but lots. And yeah, I have some key key things here that, that that type of game should have. But let's, let's go for it. All right. So I wanted to showcase what's new in modern board gaming. Could you give me I an example? Could you give me an example? Well, just me... I just mean like something like a game that I'll have coming up, but like Blue Lagoon, where there's like two completely separate, you know, parts of the game, or something like Shards of Infinity, where you can play cards out of the the pool and not have to put them in your deck. Something new and inventive, not just you know like a, you know the same old, same old again. Eh, I I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, because look, there are lots of people who have been in the hobby for like. 
10, maybe even 20 years, who've never played El Grande or something like that. I, I, I don't necessarily agree that it has to be new. I, I think that true, what you're pointing uh, to true. is novelty. My, my, list, my list sort of morphed into recommending games for new players for some reason, and then I had to rein sure. it around. Sure, but I, I think that, that highlighting necessarily something new in the hobby, I, I think what you're pointing at is something that will grab someone's attention and interest because they didn't necessarily conceive of games being like that before. And that that could be something mechanical. Like for I, I think Shards of Infinity is a good example because that that is something being able to play something right from the middle of of, of the of the table that wouldn't necessarily impress somebody who had never played a deck builder before because that to them might just be how you play cards. But somebody who's played a deck builder uh, many deck builders before might not have seen that. So there Shards of Infinity, you're going to catch the people that have never played a deck builder before because they're going to be introduced to deck building, but you're also going to catch the people jaded of deck builders with that specific element. All right, I have games that can be both competitive and co-op at the same time. Such not as? At the same, not at the same plane, but can can play both. Oh! That can, can, that can be played as a, a competitive game or a cooperative game. I generally find it safer if I don't know anything about the people that I'm talking to, to recommend co-ops. Yes, there are people who don't like co-ops. But I, I find that they are vanishingly small when compared to the people who are either A, indifferent, or B, vastly prefer co-ops. Agreed. That's what I mean. That's why it's good for a game that can do both. So if they don't like co-ops, they can pay in the competitive way. <laughs> that, is, that is a good point. That's one of the reasons why, again, turning back to novelty, right? Uh, that's one of the reasons why the crew, I think, is so good at and so easy to recommend to lots of people. Because usually people are familiar with trick-taking games. And the notion that a trick-taking game can be cooperative really blows a lot of people's minds. Again, whether they've been in the hobby or not, uh, the, the idea that this this classic form of game could be turned entirely on its head by that simple shift is something that makes it so easy to recommend. And again, it makes it so easy to recommend, especially because if you've got a new gamer that that, that isn't necessarily deep into the hobby, co-ops just seem to most people, less stressful. It's true. You're sniping all the games that I'm going to talk about at the end, but I'll just go into it now. <laughs> because the crew is such a great thing, because a, a lot of times you'll ask someone, well, have you ever played a trick-taking game? And they'll, they'll say no. And it's I instantly love it because you teach a person a single trick-taking game, you've just taught them a thousand games. It's true. All right, games that are good at all player counts and can be played solo. Oh, really? You think so? Solo, solo is often not, nece- not, nece- not necessarily solo, but more more on different hmm. player counts. That can be good at two player and four player. It all, they that it would play all player counts well. Yeah, I'm 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 often surprised, but I'm never surprised by somebody who's new to the hobby or not terribly familiar with lots of board games for not really being sensitive to player count. I'm generally surprised when there are other people who. I would I would associate as being more experienced hobby gamers or deeper into the hobby that are entirely indifferent to how crucial player count can be for a game. Again, I you know I'm, to turn back to El Grande, the person who tried El Grande once with three players and says it's not very good and not very tight and competitive. It's like, well, yeah, but I mean, El Grande is really only good with four or five. So yeah, it's true. I'm gonna say it just came up the other day where you know XXX game. Oh, it plays up to five. Why don't we get five players? I said right no, because it it it. I'm not going to play it five because it's bad. If I, but you've never played it that way, so why don't you try it? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe my, you know, 
years of experience. <laughs> Walker the gatekeeper emerges. I'm not gatekeeping. It's like, come on. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Like seriously, I'm not gonna play Caverna at seven. Enough. <laughs> sure. I think Caverna at seven, I think, is an excellent paradigm case. Okay, the game should actually be available. I'm not gonna suggest a game that you can't get. Uh, yeah, it's so tricky though. I I agree with you, and that's one of the reasons why I have, for what it's worth, I have been trying to draft a list of of recommendable games for the website. But one of the things that's been holding me back primarily is not the conceptual difficulties that you're raising, not that I'm not sympathetic to them, but we're in such a periodical model of board game publishing now where what is in print is so in flux. Like, yeah, some games are heavily out of print. Glory to Rome is super out of print. And that's not going to change anytime soon. El Grande, too, because we've been talking about El Grande, is super out of print. But the crew, the crew is in print, but I don't know if you can buy it. Is it out of print on online retailers? It could be. It could be the case that it's super hard to get. And so sometimes the the difference between in print and out of print is, is kind of academic because either it's perennially in print or sometimes it's really hard to find. And I've down here real choices. So this just like rules out games that are just really fun, like, you know, Quacks Quiglenberg. Great, fun game, but no, like, core choice there. Really? Huh. For for, for my mind, it, it's weird. It just occurs to me that quality of decision-making isn't necessarily one of the first key criteria I would think of when trying to recommend a game to people that I don't necessarily know very well. Because well, I just I just rather recommend them a game as a you know like I I class those into experience things sure. you know when you it's it's more of an experience and I'd rather recommend a game over an experience. Okay, well, what about dexterity games? Because I will always recommend dexterity games. No, no, I that was one of the things that I would never really because like uh, niche games like dexterity or miniature or something that is is. A little, you know, sort sort of a subcategory. Hmm. I don't think I would ever recommend because there's like certain people that just don't are not good at dexterity games. They don't like it, or they don't want to stand up during a game, or they don't want to do certain things. I just think there's too much of a wide range of wow of things that could go wrong. Now, I'm I'm absolutely sympathetic to the problem of being ableist when recommending dexterity games. And I've made sweeping statements in the past that were a little ableist with respect to my endorsement of dexterity games. So yes, if you don't know if someone has palsy or if someone's elderly or if somebody has functional disabilities that make them unable to to play dexterity games in the same way that other people would, yes, that's absolutely a barrier. And I agree with you that there are some niche activities like historical consims or, or miniatures games, even if they were short and accessible, that would prevent me from recommending them broadly. But I, I absolutely think that dexterity games are so accessible for the most part. And that's one of the reasons why I frequently recommend them. And I, and, and for me, you talked before about showing people what's new in the hobby or showing them an aspect of board gaming that they didn't necessarily appreciate before. That's one of the things that I love about dexterity games, because especially if you're trying to bring someone into the hobby and, or if this is the first representation and, or if this is somebody who's coming back or anyway, Dexterity games are so good at puncturing a whole bunch of negative stereotypes about board gaming, about how it's elitist and inaccessible in the sense of dry and intellectual and only for certain kinds of people. And I just want to have fun with my friends. Dexterity games are often a brilliant way of doing that. True. I'm 100% agree. If you're introducing someone, if you're there, you're setting up a game or you have a load of games, you say, hey, let's try this 100%. Okay. But if someone's like on the phone with you, oh, what game should I get? 
oh, go get men at work. It's really fun. <laughs> you know, you have no, you I mean, it's, you have no idea what environment that that game is going to go into. I suppose that's fair, but I think, okay, well, let me put it this way. I think we can agree that taking somebody who is completely alien to most board games and they know that something's a dexterity game, I think they will be able to correct for that far better than they'd be able to correct for, say, proper player count or proper level of arithmetic ability or inclination to engage with history or whatever, or, or other things that make, make games inaccessible or situation dependent. Don't you think? Agreed. Okay. So I briefly scanned over the rest of these points, and they're all for sort of... S- uh, early gaming groups. So if you wanted to go over them, I could, but they're all sort of, if you're recommending games for people who don't play games that often. Yeah, because one of the things that immediately occurred to me was, again, talking about this certain kind of board gamer that maybe maintains a collection or visits Board Game Geek all the time and keeps up to date with these things. Again, and I, 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 I can't stress, I, I want to be very, very explicit. I'm not saying that these board gamers are more of a board gamer than anybody else. To be very clear, if you play a board game, you are a board gamer. That's that's all there is to it. This is as wide a group as possible. I'm talking about a very subset of people who have a very strange relationship to this hobby. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's very unusual and somewhat strange. These gamers, it, it can be a much easier to try to recommend things for them because you can give them the details. You can tell them who designed it. You can tell them who published it. You can tell them the theme. You can tell them what other game it's, it's related to. And typically, that is enough to, for them to get a picture of what's going on. And or they're often willing to try anything. Like one of the things about people who play lots and lots of different games is usually they're not averse to trying new ones. And so it's a lot easier. And so the, the real challenge, I find, is precisely for those board gamers who have a couple board games that they like and maybe want to try another one. And you're trying to figure out a way to, to, to find something they'll enjoy. Or people who only have experience with the so-called classics and would like to get some sense of what your hobby is all about. That's the su- the real challenge. I find it striking, though, that you haven't mentioned something. And, and this, to me, is, I think, the biggest impact on whether or not a game is recommendable. And I want to see if you can guess what it is. This is this is the Walker quiz time. Because you haven't mentioned it, and I think it's the number one factor. Sincerely. Well, mine is... The last, the last point I was going to make was is don't let your personal bias steer your choice. Oh, 100%. Like, you really, like... If you really like a game or whatever, just make sure that there is some sort of consensus on on some sort of website that it is, you know, halfway respectable. Don't just say just because you <laughs> like it that it's, it's going to be great for someone else. Well, I don't know if I would appeal to a website necessarily, unless it's so wrong games.com. But, yeah, I definitely have to be sensitive to the situation. I'm surprised. it Artwork. The art and the visual presentation of a game, I find is perhaps one of the single most consequential factors to whether or not I feel comfortable recommending a game to a broad swath of people. Because number one, nobody is entirely indifferent to the visual impact of a board game. And for some people, it is hugely deterministic. Sometimes even, I think, dispositive. I do have have a line here that makes sure the game is accessible and demonstrates inclusion. Oh yeah, definitely. So that sort of thing, you know, you got to make sure, you know, it's going to appeal to the person that you're recommending it to, and it's not going to be offensive in any way. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons why more and more when it comes to games representing colonialism, which I'm willing to play, games representing World War II, which I'm absolutely willing to play, games that are the term that I coined in talking about the Witcher board game on Pledge of Indifference, monochromatic sausage fests. uh, These are not games that I'm going to recommend to white audiences. I'll try them and, you know, I'll I'll even play them with, with some gamers. But that is, that is of course, an aspect of the artwork and presentation that's super important. I mean, we, we've talked about Calico. We've talked about Parks. I have no difficulty understanding why these games really, really became very popular and very widespread talked about. Everdell, same token. I really, I, despite the fact that Everdell I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, they just they, they present a very, very visually coherent and visually compelling world. And that really draws people in. Gamers of all levels of experience and skill levels are really drawn to games of that nature. And it makes it a lot easier to recommend games of that ilk. Again, it's one of the reasons why I find Regicide so easy to put in front of people. Because you, you explain the rules and they go, oh, okay, this is a standard deck of cards. And just over the course of the game, they just start l- making new realizations about how much character and personality are on the cards. And last, I have a good story or reason that is intertwined within the gameplay. Like a good theme or story, or reason why you're doing something, something that sort of ties the whole game together, something that helps the flow of the game and introduce the game and keeps the rules clear and in a particular order. always find that's a, a, a good game that you can recommend. I've seen this abused, though. I can think of a couple of recent examples where... Lies. Well, yeah, sometimes... Sometimes the theme is very, very good to help drawing people in. Again, it's part of the artwork and presentation. Sometimes it is used by people who either are not sensitive enough to what they're trying to recommend to people they don't know, and or are, I'm not going to say trying to manipulate people, but maybe trying to manipulate people. I'm thinking of the kind of gamer that holds up a box of Battlestar Galactica or Dune and says, hey, do you like this source material? Maybe you should try this game. And I'm like, whoa, slow down. (laughs) Like, yeah. Sure, if you like the show or you like the book or whatever movie adaptation or whatever, that is absolutely apt to make you more inclined to enjoy the game. But that's that's not the first and most dispositive question about, hey, did you like Battlestar Galactica? Let's try this game. It's like, no, what you're getting into. As we often say, read the room. Agreed. So next up, I just have a list of like four or five games, and we've talked about some of them already. Sure. Do you have any other points that you want to make? Uh, the, the final point I was going to make is, again, I was talking about this in the context of Empire of the Stars. If I don't know the group in question, I will typically, even if it's a competitive game, not recommend a game with a lot of direct combat. Because that just rubs some people the wrong way. And you can have highly competitive, highly interactive games that aren't necessarily combative in that sense. Again, I mean, talking about Parks, I don't want to hold up Parks as the greatest thing ever. It it, it was fine. But there is player interaction in Parks, and it was substantial, but at the same time, it didn't feel remotely competitive. And so that's, again, one of those reasons why I I have no difficulty understanding about why it found such a wide audience. Alright, I have Whale Riders in here. It's a great, very visually pleasing, nice and bright, easy to learn, two actions, nice little sort of race down the track recipe collection game. And it's a great way to on-ramp them onto other Reiner Knizia games too. Because it, it, exactly. it's the kind of thing like, oh, if you like this, there's five million other things you can try. I have Scythe here, only because really? the iconography... Yeah, well, the iconography and the player boards are great. Everything is in front of you. One of the the points that I didn't make earlier, because it's like I said, it's, it's more directed at, at first-time players, but games... 
that on a second play, you don't need to pick up the rule book. Mm, good that point. It's sort of all sort of, you know, falls together. It all sort of makes sense. In Scythe, you put out the pieces, they go on your board, you start the game. All of the rules are right on your board where, you know, what actions you need to do, what these actions do, where it goes on the board. Everything is there. Uh, like you just talked about the minimal combat there is, you know, people could go all in on the combat, but you'll, you know, very soon realize that it's not a big part of the game. You have to take your strikes and know when to, when to initiate that combat and it's and it encompasses all sorts of different parts of gaming, you know, like sort of clearing your tableau, like I said, card collection, combat, all sorts of different things, and it just looks amazing. You have made a very strong case. I personally would be nervous about recommending Scythe because if the if the if I didn't know anything about them, I would worry about the combat. And if I knew that they liked combat heavy games, we're talking about people that really liked Risk or really liked Diplomacy or any of the, the other classic mainstream combat heavy games, I'd be worried that they might misunderstand how the game works or come with preconceived notions about it. So uh, I, I hear you. I just have reservations. Next up, I have Gloomhaven, specifically Jaws of the Lion. Most because this is... I don't want to say baby steps, but it takes you through everything. The cards, they did a fantastic system with the cards. You, you just, you know, open up the game. You start working your way through the deck. It takes you through all the different actions, how everything works. Eventually, you weed out those cards and get, you know, the more advanced cards in and introduces the game in a way that you can easily learn it. And, well, you know, it's a great way to sort of bring people into that sort of campaign sort of adventure games, like if they've never had that before or anything like that. It's not like the super, like say if they've never done a game like that and you give them this giant box of figures and rules and dice and right. they sort of have to go from step one and try to figure it out where this it gives you nice little baby steps with a story and 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 lets you ease into it and brings the rules in slowly. And I thought that it's a... What a great idea it was. For role players, absolutely. For people who explicitly said, I want to see what the best of the modern hobby has to offer. Give me give me whatever you got. Absolutely. If I didn't know either of those two details, I'd be a little bit concerned that it might be a little bit too much. Maybe, but maybe that's just me. Maybe that's me making too many assumptions. Well, the fact that everything's in the book, you know what I mean? You don't have to build the map anymore. You just open the book and the map is there. And I think they did a great job. Oh, I agree. No, no question about it. I just, Gloomhaven to me is a, even even in the Jaws of the Lion version, is a high upkeep, high component count, high threshold kind of experience. And if you if that isn't what you're looking for, like just think about the gulf between a couple of your suggestions, right? Imagine the gulf between Whale Riders and Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, right? If Whale Riders True. is about as complicated as a game they want... And you say, well, you know, you could try Well Riders or you could try Jaws of the Lion. I don't know. That's a big. That's a big risk. But then well, again, then there would have to be a, a lot of payoff. A few caveats there. It'd be like yeah. sort of like a sort of what are you looking for type thing. Yeah, yeah. And then I would steer them one way or the other. But Fair and then just wingspan. I have wingspan here just for the like the theme is is welcoming to a, a large vast audience. You know, bird watching. It is nice basic action selection. Things do what they say. There's no fiddly bits. Everything works the way it should. Nice chunky dice to roll. Beautiful to look at. Cute sure. little eggs. It's true. Don't you think people are going to get a little upset at the vulture is going to lay a bunch of eggs and outside those vulture eggs come out a goldfinch or something? 
that's deeply alienating to me. It 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 seems pretty horrific. <laughs> and lastly, we already talked about Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon, yet another Reiner Knizia game. Do two actions has this great double phase sort of game. The first phase, you're setting out your villages, so you're ready to go in the second phase. All sorts of new concepts and interesting gameplay. One of these things, like I said, you'll never need to pick up the rule book again once you've got your first game under your belt. What a great game. I agree. So I think I think to sum up, recommending games is very hard. <laughs> it's very daunting. I've been I I have a terrible track record even when I know the other player, when I have some sense of what of, of, of what they like. And absent some sort of guiding principle, I really do think you have to be extraordinarily careful. And I think that a lot of your caveats, Walker, were very, very good ones. But Again, for me, I honestly think you're underselling the impact of visuals. For me, I, I would definitely like one of the one of the aspects of Gloomhaven, for example, is that it's very, very standard D and D type of art, and that might rub a lot of people the wrong way. You're already casting a relatively smaller net. I think that, despite my misgivings about the game itself, Wingspan is you know a safer bet because a lot of it's not to my taste. I really don't like it, but a lot of experienced gamers like it as well as a lot of uh, gamers with less exposure to the hobby. And I, I think that one of the serious reasons why we keep seeing talk about Wingspan is indeed the visuals. And that's not to slam the game. It's absolutely a triumph of visual design. And so for, for me, I, I really lead with the visuals in terms of thinking about what I'm going to do. There are some exceptions, of course. The crew's an exception. Code names, a variety of party games where everyone gets to get together and... and, and uh, oh, yes, yeah, so I, had, I had something for here. Not party games, just because they're so obvious. You know, everyone likes body games. Yeah, that's fair. Everyone likes party games. It's so obvious. It's like buying your competitor's company and running it into the ground. <laughs> I'm sorry for being so obvious, Walker. I'm just super basic. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for us for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Guild, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch, as well as sowronggames.com. We'll read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining us once again for the glorious return of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent, Duke of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. This week we're talking about He's All That, He's All That, being the gender-swapped version of She's All That, 90s classic starring Rachel Lee Cook of the criminally underrated... Stop. No, 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 look, just look, stop. Walk, Walker, hear me out, okay? Can you hear me out for just a second? So, Paul Walker is in She's All That. Now, his character's name is not Brian O'Connor, but we don't know for a fact that after he graduated high school, he didn't change his name to Brian O'Connor and join the FBI. Therefore, we cannot conclusively determine that She's All That is not a Fast and the Furious movie. And later on, he goes to space and kills aliens because he's fed up with blowing up cars? Okay, sounds good. 
Only if Paul Walker's in the movie and if the timeline works out and can be... What do you want to talk about, Walker? Well, Mark, we've ta- we talked a lot about the Avatar role-playing game come out. Some people might not realize how magical and awesome the Avatar series is. Fine, is we'll talk Netflix, about Avatar. And it's on it's on Netflix right now for everyone to to digest and 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 absorb. Avatar is the story about a young boy who is given this huge responsibility. And like many young men do, he he cracks under this huge responsibility and he runs from it and he is he is caught out in a storm and does some magical stuff to save him and his pet and therefore is locked in ice for over a hundred years oh okay the world the world is robbed from uh the avatar's guidance because the avatar is this uh being that sort of is striving to keep a balance across this world. And uh, so the fact that he disappears for over a hundred years, there's some imbalance that happens. And now he is on a quest to reestablish himself and create balance once again. It's funny, up until the part where you said encased in a giant block of ice, I thought you were talking about Steven Universe. Because one of the things, and I'm sincere here, one of the things that I was struck by when watching Avatar, which I watched on your recommendation, and I enjoyed, was how much better Steven Universe was at being a property that appealed to all ages. Because there's some things that kid shows are assumed to have to have. All right, One of them is... All the major protagonists have to be children. And you can engage in whatever plot permutations and tortured explanations you have in order to make sure that all the major players are children. That is a thing that Steven Universe just abandoned. You could have major characters that were adults. You could let them be fully fleshed out, emotionally consequential, salient people. Avatar only has one, and that's Uncle Iroh, who is admittedly the very best thing about Avatar. He's amazing. Mako is a very, very talented voice actor. I love Uncle Iroh. He's my favorite thing in the show. But the rest of it is like, well, why are these kids just wandering around on their own on the back of this giant bison? Wouldn't it make sense for one of the adults to just like keep an eye over them if for no other reason than they're powerful, influential, and or could rent R-rated movies? No, 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 no. Just a whole bunch of teens and preteens going out and saving the world. So I found that a little bit tortured, just a touch. Well, let's ju- other children relate to it, right? It's like this is something that they could do. This I they don't always, like, buy that. Up. Kids can oh, relate right. to lots of things, but I can't relate to kids. So what I'm saying is, is that media has to accommodate my narrow-mindedness, not the other I way see. around. I see. I see. The second thing that kid shows need to have is cute animals. And Avatar has it in spades. Because I thought it was a is, little much. They have what they have is there. They do have some creatures that are by themselves just normal earth creatures. Yes. But the majority of the creatures in the avatar are this amalgamation between two other creatures, like a platypus bear. The platypus bear is terrifying, Walker. (laughs) Or any number of other whatever combinations you can think of. Well, I'm talking specifically about Appa and Momo, which are not, which are not combinations. Appa is just like, I guess if you want to say he's a combination of Sleipnir, the six-legged horse from Norse mythology, and some sort of woolly mammoth, I guess that's the cross that Appa is. <laughs> is what they call a sky bison. Yes. The other thing that I found very striking about uh, episode uh, about season one was that for, for non-serialized storytelling, it's all episodic, like aggressively episodic, far too much for my taste. But 
very much like season one of Babylon 5, although it's aggressively episodic, they are willing to do callbacks to previous things in the series. Oh, that character from from episode three, they're back in episode 16 for, you know, plausible reasons. But again, there's no overarching narrative, but at least there are callbacks. That and the routine and gratuitous destruction of cabbages. There is a lot of cabbage destruction. There's a lot of episodes where they deal with real stuff, and I really appreciate that. And and because there's there's been years of war, so there's orphans, there's pain, there's suffering. That's true. Refugees, a lot of dislocation. And so there's a lot of stuff there, and it's a lot about uh, children dealing with it. And I'm wondering if if that was sort of like to help the children that are watching to like deal with stuff that, that might be happening in their lives, a way to relate to problems that are going on in the world type thing. I'm just wondering uh, maybe. if this is a great way to introduce these sort of emotions and feelings in ways that they could feel. Cause by the end of the episode, like most of all TV shows are, there's always the happy ending. So it's like something they can look forward to and feel as though that this, this problem, they will be eventually be able to overcome it. The last thing that I want to stress about avatar is Oh my goodness, the animation is lavish. It is so visually sumptuous. Every fight scene, every chase scene, every conversation is just loaded with so many unnecessary frames. Someone could just be leaning against a post and their bones will shift the way human bones shift. It's 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 really impressive. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, sh- I should have looked more into it. I don't think... There's a lot of it that is computer animated. None of it looks like it's computer assisted in any way. It looks only like the metal all... machines look computer assisted. The rest of it looks hand drawn. Yeah, so it's a nice callback to like pure artistry, and it, it and the and the whole premise of this world is so that, that sort of thing is all it all deals with basic elements, you know, like fire, wind, water, air. You said wind and air. You left out earth. Earth, sorry, Earth. And it's all about these people that can manipulate these natural substances into like attacks and or make buildings and or just make life easier in general. And the Avatar supposedly or normally can manipulate all four of these elements. I was a little disappointed by how fast and loose the powers were. And I was also disappointed with the pacing at which people could get better. Like, most of the training seemed to consist of, hey, have you considered being badass? And then the character said, oh, maybe I should be badass. And then, you know, literally the next day, they're able to do something amazing, which is fine, whatever. You know, the time compression happens. And, like, yes, it takes months and months to master basic skills. And they don't want to show that. Okay. And... They're unclear about whether or not airbenders are telekinetic. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, whatever. And the other benders can't generate elements, but the firebenders can generate fire whenever they damn well please, unlike the other ones. They kind of address why that might be possible in Season 2, but that's getting ahead of myself. Anyway, I will say this, though. It is super impressive, and I think part of this is because they did the research, they hired the right people, and they listened to the right people, how they made a world which is just generically Asian, and it doesn't feel like a bunch of stereotypes. There's nothing There's nothing specific. Like, you can't... Like, yes, the waterbenders are clearly doing Tai Chi, and the uh, firebenders are clearly doing, you know, other other forms of, of, of Wushu and, and Japanese martial arts, but whatever. But it, it's all pastiche, but none of it feels lazy, none of it feels sloppy, none of it feels like crude stereotype. It's a, it's a whole world built, and I thought they did a great job. And I rewatch it on, on the reg. 
Thank you very much for joining us from Mass Theater. Come join us next week when we will be discussing He's All That. He's All That is the gender swap remake of She's All That, the 1999 classic starring Rachel Lee Cook. We'll see you no, then. No, we won't. Yes, we will. Bye-bye. <laughs> no, we won't. Yes, yes, we will. <laughs>